0: I was watching a story this week uh, about a man in the Bronx who was waiting on a bus stop, and as he was standing, waiting for the bus stop, the sidewalk he was standing on literally gave way. He fell through a hole that was just wide enough for his body to pass through, and underneath this hole was about a 15-foot drop. As he lay there for over 30 minutes, waiting on first responders to get there to begin to can I help remove him? He um, had one of the worst experiences imaginable. As he was there, trapped under the concrete and the debris from falling 15 feet, he was surrounded by rats—not cute little ones that you buy at PetSmart. No, these are these New York City. We carry our own weapons. We drag our own egg McMuffins down the subway. Rats, really big ones, and They were all over his body because he'd fallen into a rat's nest. His brother interviewed after kind of talking through the experience while his, uh, his brother was being transported to the hospital, he said that his brother while down there was afraid to yell for help because he was so afraid that if he opened his mouth, the rats might crawl in it. Like, how messed up is that? And yet, somehow, as I read that story, I couldn't help but think about where we are right now and the way that so many of you and the news agencies kind of live with the sense right now, are we in a nightmare? For some of us, that nightmare be, may maybe what we watch on the news, that we may see the way uh, storylines are playing out with raising uh, kind of numbers around COVID or maybe for some of us it's there's so much anxiety um, around the election. Uh, I've had people who I respect, who I love, who uh, you know really genuinely are concerned this week that some type of like unrest may break out. Or maybe it's for some of you who are looking at the implications of COVID-19 and you made it through the summer with your small business where you've been living off your savings and you're not sure how are you going to make it through another fall and winter of the same thing we went through in the spring? And that while it may not be literal rats <laughs> crawling on our bodies, and for that I am grateful, um, it's still, for many of us, just as much of a nightmare. In fact, that's why uh, this week I wanted to extend our Talking point series. I wanted to just go one more week because I think it's really critical as we come into the election week, um, or to the, really the finish line of what's been an election season with the number of people who voted early, that we um, take a breather together, that we start off looking at a story that may on the surface not have a lot to do with where we are right now as a society, or where, may, where you may feel like we are as a society, or where you may be as a family, or someone who's unemployed, still trying to find a job in a sector, or a whole kind of group of businesses that don't look like they're going to open anytime soon. That this story demonstrates a major turning point in the life of the disciples, or what we call Jesus' followers. And that in this moment, there is something in this moment that can speak to our moment to help us where we are. It's found in the book of Luke. And Luke as an author, writes his gospel, his biographical account of the life of Jesus, a little differently than how some of the other accounts are. Matthew and Mark write theirs to a primary Jewish audience, whereas Luke writes his to the rest of the world, what was called the Gentiles at the time. So Luke pens his letter, and because of the uniqueness of his audience, Luke uses certain words that turns out in this story has a lot to say about where you and I are in our story. It's found in Luke chapter 5. If you have the Encounter Church app and you're watching this on the screen, uh, you can pull that up and follow along, or um, I'm going to be reading it off the screen back here as well. So um, in Luke 5, one day as Jesus was standing by the Lake of Gennesaret, which is just uh, the name for the region around Galilee, and so he's at the Sea of Galilee, and the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So to kind of give you a little bit of a background, around the Sea of Galilee, there are some natural embankments that um, large groups of people would be able to stand on. And because the water level was lower, if you were able to walk down to the shore, it, it formed a natural amphitheater. So you've got Crowds of people all kind of crowded around the hillside. And Jesus is at the very bottom of that, right on the water's edge, teaching them. More and more people are showing up. And as he's teaching them, um, it's beginning to get a little crowded. And so he notices the boats on the side. And so it says that um, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. You see, what Jesus has done is he's using the natural reverberations off the water and off the hillside to to turn out like an amphitheater. And the boat is essentially his floating stage. It makes it easier for him to be able to speak, to, to kind of proclaim and project his voice in a day and age where that was pretty much the only way you could project your voice. And it allowed the crowds to get even closer so you could get even more people in that space without being crushed and crowded by them. And as he's sitting on the boat, and he's teaching them, and people are amazed at what he's saying. It says that when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, this is really important um, because uh, most of us don't spend a lot of time uh, professionally fishing and being aware of the professional first century fisherman techniques. But what Jesus was asking Simon to do was simply absurd. The reason that they were there that day washing their nets, this is probably happening in the early morning hours, is they're washing their nets because they are done for the day, not because they're getting started. When we think fishermen oftentimes we think, you know, the kind of cast the rod and the bait and pull it in and but in first century there there wasn't a bait and tackle, there wasn't a rod to throw out with a little hook at the end, what they used professionally to fish was nets, really large nets that would require multiple men to to use. And because these nets were big and bulky, the fish could clearly see them during the day, which meant that fish didn't swim into your net. So you had the night fish. If you were a professional fisherman in the first century, it meant that you were a third shift worker. And so Simon and um, his brother and James and John, this group of people that are essentially business partners together in this fishing business. They're there, and Jesus is telling them, throw your nets in the water. I mean, it's like if I walked up to, some, to, to Cam Newton and said, hey, here's what you should do on this next play. Like, Cam Newton wouldn't listen to me. Tom Brady sure wouldn't have listened to me. The reality is is that that's about as absurd as it is. This guy who had been a carpenter his entire life is trying to dictate how these guys who do this professionally should act. And everything about it is absurd. In fact, they could have thought it was a joke because of the true absurdity of it. But what happens in this story is it says, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So to make it even worse, he's like, Look, you want me to throw a net over. The fish weren't swimming in the net at night. What makes you think they're going to swim during the day? There's no fish. He says, But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. No. What plays out here in just those few sentences, I think has a lot to say about where we are today. Now remember, Luke is writing to an audience that um, doesn't know Jewish terms. So Luke doesn't use the term other biographical writers of Jesus does, which is rabbi, because Jesus was a rabbi. No, they, Luke knows rabbi doesn't mean anything. So Luke uses two words, master and teacher. But the way he uses those two words are significant. In fact, this is the first time the word master is written in Luke's account. You see, the word teacher was often used by people who were coming up to Jesus who were part of the crowd, people who were kind of spectators in Jesus's ministry. People on the streets would have called him a teacher because that's what he did. But if you flip through Luke's account, what you find is that all the people who followed Jesus, well, they called him master. They didn't call him teacher. You see, one of the things that Luke draws a distinction in this chapter that's really essential for the rest of his book is that the crowd saw Jesus for what he did. His disciples, his core group of followers, saw Jesus for who he was. The crowd saw Jesus for what he did, while the core, saw him for who he was and this makes a big difference because if you're just a teacher you have no business telling me how to throw out my nets but if you're the master if you're what has already been alluded to when it says the word of God if you're from God if you are different then you obviously have a right to say anything about any part of my life that this not teacher, but master would say, throw your nets down, meant that they were forced to make a choice in the moment. And Peter, Simon Peter, makes the choice that he was going to trust Jesus for who he was, regardless of what the circumstances around him said. He was going to trust more in Jesus and his character than he was his circumstances. And this, I think, is a transferable practice for you and I in this season. That if you're a Christ follower, if you are one of those core followers of Jesus, not a crowd, not not a spectator, but a participator in the Christian faith, then we don't respond to Jesus for what he did. We respond to Jesus for who he is. We see him. We look to him. And what Simon Peter is doing is allowing us to realize that our reactions to the moment, is not based in the circumstances we find ourselves in, but to the character of the God who is with us in the circumstances. It's the character, not the circumstances, that dictate our reaction. That's where our trust is. You see, at the end of the day, we all put our trust into something. We put our trust in ourselves, that we're going to figure out how to do it. We put our trust in the circumstances, and that we hope the circumstances turn, or we hope this works out. or We can elevate above both of those and do what Simon did, which was put his trust in the character of who Jesus was. And in that moment, he demonstrates that trust is one of the essential practices and disciplines of of people who follow Jesus. And even coming into this week where we are, I think that one of those talking points for ourselves to talk back to ourselves is. A reminder to trust Him. To trust that He's still in control when everything may feel out of control. That He's still in control when so many things seem chaotic or even when your life feels chaotic. And I recognize, even as I'm saying that, it can come across a little um, overly simplistic. I, I didn't become a Christian until college. And one of the things that used to annoy me was Christians that I would talk to who would have ridiculous, oversimplified sayings for everything. They were Christians who had really good bumper stickers and really good like, things on their wall, response levels. And they would be like, oh, you need to let go and let God. And I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? And so I naturally recoiled anything that's overly simplistic. I, I naturally recoil with anything that gets labeled, when people label a whole season with some simple phrase. And I don't want you to think that's what I'm doing, because that's not. There's a lot more in this passage than just what's on the surface. It's not just simply let go and let God. It's not just that type of passivity. It's more than that. Now, I love history. I um, probably would say it's one of my hobbies, is I I like knowing the past. And one of the elections, as we found ourselves in this election, that I've been really fascinated by, is the election of 1864, because to set the stage, right? Abraham Lincoln is finishing up his first term as president. The nation at the time is in the most bloody war that it has ever been in up to that point, and it is a civil war. The Union is fighting the Confederate States. The soul of our nation is at risk and in the middle of that battle, in the middle of a nationwide war with each other, there's an election. People were actually going and voting for the president. Now, at, in 1864, Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election against George McClellan. I just gave you a Jeopardy question answer there, all right? George McClellan had been a commander of the Union Army. But because of his unwillingness to kind of charge Robert E. Lee, um, because of some cowardness and a lack of um, kind of go getem em attitude, uh, McClellan was a little bit of a chicken. Abraham Lincoln let him go. So McClellan builds his whole political platform around, I want to take this nation and restore it to peace. We've lost too many people in battle, and so I'm going to make peace with the Confederate states. I'm going to end this war. And In August, throughout the summer leading up to August and the beginning of September, Abraham Lincoln was convinced he was going to lose the election of 1864. He did a lot of neat things that at some point, maybe I'll tell you the story of, that were really admirable traits, but one of the things that he did that I think is really really relevant for this morning, is a letter writing that he and Frederick Douglass had. Now, Abraham Lincoln was convinced that slavery was wrong, and that he recognized that if McClellan won, that slavery as an institution would be completely solidified. The Confederate States or any type of future United States was destined to have slavery again. And Abraham Lincoln knew that he was going to lose the election, so he began to propose to Frederick Douglass a plan to smuggle as many slaves out of the Confederacy as possible before McClellan was reelected. In fact, there's multiple pages of Frederick Douglass mapping out the plan for how they could smuggle slaves out of the South and get them into the North. It was an incredible, thoughtful plan, just like what you would expect from someone like Frederick Douglass. And as um, Douglas is kind of mapping out this plan, all along, Abraham Lincoln believes he's going to lose. You see, Abraham Lincoln knew that what was the most important thing was to rescue the slaves who had been caught, captured, and were oppressed in the southern kind of confederacy. So he says, look, even if I lose, I'm going to make sure that I free as many slaves as I possibly can before I can't anymore. You see, what Abraham Lincoln is doing in that moment, I think, is what we see Simon do. He's, emos- he's demonstrating for us a- an important aspect of what biblical trust looks like, which is appropriate, right action. Let-, let me illustrate it this way. You see, oftentimes what we struggle with when it comes to trust when we say trust God, is, I think, an oversimplification. And what Abraham Lincoln knew was that, while God can handle the election, I can help to orchestrate a plan to get slaves out of the South because it was wrong. I can do that. I can mobilize people to do that. God can handle the election. I can help implement a plan. Now, when we talk about trusting, when we talk about trusting God, I think for many of us, the oversimplistic part that we react to is a confusion of these two arenas around trust. You see, when I say trust, I don't mean what most people mean, which is, well, I'm just going to let God manage all of that. I have nothing to do. Passivity, so I'm just going to sit back. But No. When I say trust God, what we see with Simon is he has an option. He throws his net over the water, believing that God can make fish appear. So I can throw my net, God can make the fish appear. And because he understood that, his trust was not a passive trust, it was an active trust. And I think for us in this season of election, it's like I can vote. God can handle the outcome. and In the midst of dealing with maybe some financial uncertainty, I can cut back, I can budget, um, I can save, but God can supply my every need. And understanding that there are some things that I can do gives me a freedom to actively trust what only God can do. And that this I can and God can is active in any situation and circumstance when we talk about trusting God. And I think oftentimes where we have a breakdown is when we confuse the two or we put the wrong thing in the wrong can. There are some things that we place in God's can that really should be in our can. That I can budget, I can save. I can, you know, fill in the blank. But God's not going to send me a budget. He's given me a brain. He's provided principles throughout Scripture to show me how to do that. I can do that. God can supply my need, even if what I have on paper can't. And this I can, God can tension helps us to sleep better at night. Because oftentimes what keeps us awake at night is that we've taken things that only God can do and we put them in our I can do. Our concern about our children. Yes, do you have some responsibility in leading them? I can do that. I can give them advice. I can, you know, shepherd them out of who they are. I can fill in the blank. But I can't control the choices they make. I can't do that. But God can protect them. God can guide them. God can bring people in their life that they might listen to. God can meet them in their lowest moments and whisper mercy and love. That's, this is why I think our family ministry is so important, because the I can piece is I can have my kids engaged on Sunday morning. Even in this digital season, I can still have a ritual and a habit where my preschool, toddler, elementary kids can watch and engage with our experience boxes and our services. If you have an older elementary kid, um, one of the things I actually enjoy doing is watching the older elementary experience. It's called the so-and-so show, and it's hilarious. Now, I can do all those things. I can't make my daughter have a faith. I can't do that. That's something I pray to him. God can do that, not me. And when I can focus on what I can do, it makes me a lot less manipulative, it makes me a lot less stressed, it makes me a lot less anxious, because I'm not mixing up these two containers. But there's a little bit more that I want to point out. So as the nets are filled and dragging down, it says, so they signal their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. This is insane amounts of fish. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now what I love about this is Luke is tying this in. This is a direct throwback to Isaiah chapter 6, which is what we started this series with. That ultimately our hope is not in the election or who wins the election. Our hope is in what's already happened, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter has his Isaiah chapter 6 moment where he realizes who Jesus really is. That Jesus isn't just some better version of Simon Peter. He's completely different from Simon. That he's in a different category altogether. And he says to him, God, I'm... Go away from me. Like, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. And it says, for when he and all his companions, they were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partner. So what we have in this moment is everyone in that business. So you've got Simon who has this business partnership. So four of the disciples, four of the followers of Jesus that we know throughout history. They, were, they left a business together to follow Jesus. And it says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Now, here's what I think is interesting. I talked about at the beginning how absurd Jesus' word was to Simon when he says, throw down your nets. And Simon's like, I'm sorry, you're not a fisherman. You realize it's daytime, right? Like Fishing 101, Jesus says you don't throw your nets during daytime. Fish don't swim in them because they see them. Like they're dumb, but they're not that dumb. Well, what's even more absurd is the fact that I just read you this passage. Because if you had jumped in a time machine and you had arrived in first century, no one, no one, if you had asked them, hey, 2,000 years from now, what name would people know? no one would have said, Simon, Peter, James, John, or Jesus. They were in this obscure, remote region of the Roman Empire where nothing good happened there. And they just happened to be in an area that even the people in that area had a phrase and a saying that nothing good comes out of that region. And yet, on that small corner of the Roman Empire will be the thing that will happen that 2,000 years later, we'll still talk about. The average American, if you walked up to them right now and you asked them, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire during this time period? Which is what everyone in that time machine would have told you. People would know 2,000 years. Clearly, 2,000 years from now, the only thing they will know will be the most important thing, which is Tiberius Caesar, our current emperor, who is the son of Augustus Caesar, our first emperor, who is the protege of Julius Caesar, Surely that will be the names 2,000 years from now they'll still talk about. Because the Roman Empire will still be reigning and ruling over the whole earth. And yet the Roman Empire is no more. The average American couldn't have told you Tiberius, they may have gotten Julius, but that's kind of a guess. And yet the name of Jesus, a carpenter, Talking to a small business of fishermen is the story I've told you this morning. Because there was more to the story than just the story. There was more to the invitation. He said, hey, from now on, you will fish for people. He says, from now on, you're going to follow me, and I'm going to use you to change the world. And they did. And they never should have. Everything about them at the beginning was stacked against them. This was a story that should have never made it past that moment and that day. And yet, here today, I'm telling you that story. Because it wasn't just a mere man telling them to throw the nets in. It was God himself on earth in the pursuit of you and me through love. When um, one of my mentors, one of his favorite books is a book called Connecting. And a phenomenal book. I would encourage you to read it. It was written by a guy named Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb tells a story in the book uh, about dealing with um, kidney stones. It was his first time dealing with kidney stones. And he was talking about how excruciating the pain was. I had a friend in high school who um, genetically his kidneys um, had um, this predisposition to produce kidney stones. His kidney grew kidney stones. And um, there were periods of time where he was just out, because of the excruciating level of pain that he was going through. And so Larry Crab arrives at the hospital and is in agonizing pain. And the one thing he wants to know is, like, is this? Can can I get rid of this pain? Because I've never felt pain like this before. And the doctor looks at him and says, "Um, "Mr. Crab, don't worry." We've got more painkiller than you've got pain. And I think for some of us today, I think what you need to hear is that there is a God who has more peace than your life has pieces that's fallen apart. There is a God of comfort who has more comfort than you have discomfort. There's a God who has more care for you than the cares that you carry. There's a God who has more supply than you have need. There's a God who has more grace than you have guilt. A God who has more freedom than you have chains. That God, that God is still in the business of transforming people's lives. That four men show up to work one day, not knowing that that day they would intersect with God Almighty, and that he would call them to trust him. And he would say, throw down your nets. And in the midst of that absurdity, they do it. And what they find in the midst of responding with the only thing they could do was that God did what only He could do. And that for some of you today, that maybe your response out of this moment is to realize that God can still do immeasurably more than you imagine. But you can too, you can do some things in the midst of the struggle. Maybe you can't change your spouse's mind, but you can change yours. You can pray for them. You can respond with love and grace for them. I'm dealing with a really difficult person right now in my life, and super, super frustrated. Um, I have to pray regularly to forgive them um, because... I feel like it's probably not healthy for a pastor to punch somebody. So it's a whole lot easier just to pray for them. So I can do that. I can pray for them. I can respond with kindness when they do mean things. I can draw boundaries to their meanness. I can have hard conversations with them. But only God can change them. Only God can transform them. And so I sleep good at night because I'm going to focus on what I can do and leave the rest to what God can do. And that, like Simon, for some of you, maybe you are trapped. Maybe you do fill the chains. Maybe you do live with guilt and shame. And you don't know how to get rid of it. Drinking numbs it for a little bit. Work distracts you for a little bit. But you still, in those moments of honesty, you still live with the regret. You still live with the shame. You still live with the guilt. You still live with the question. And like Simon Peter, his turning point was to recognize that he was a sinful man. He was a broken man. He could say that to God. He could say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And in doing that act, It set the stage for what God can do, which is to bring grace, which is to bring forgiveness, which is to bring love and restoration. So I don't know what it is today for you, where you find yourself. So let me leave you with two questions as we wrap up our series, directly tied to these cans. The first question is, what have I put in God's can that I should have put in my can? Because oftentimes where we have a breakdown is we are relying on God to do things that He's already told us we should do. That there are things that you and I bear responsibility for. There are choices that oftentimes, um, when we throw up prayers, it's like the kid who doesn't study for the test and then ask God to give him all the answers. And the heaven's response is, "I gave you all the answers." They were in your textbook. They were in your teacher's mouth. All you had to do was to learn that. And I think sometimes our breakdown is that we put on God what we should have left on us. Maybe you can't change where you are in your organization. But you can show up and you can be faithful and you can give your best. Maybe you can't financially change the pandemic and your business, but there's still some things you can do, and there's still some things that God can do, and we get clear on them, we have clarity around it, it helps to bring some peace. And the second question is what have I put in my I can that I should have placed in God's can? What do we need to take out of here? And put into here. It's probably the thing that keeps you up at night. It's probably the thing that you're terrified of. But we all have things in different cans. And what I want to encourage you today is to take these two questions. Maybe it's right now, even as our band leads us in a closing song. Or maybe it's you set a reminder on your phone to come back this evening. Or later this week. But I want to encourage you, get a sheet of paper. Just rip it into kind of like a, almost an index card or a post-it note. And write on one side, I can blank. And, and fill out maybe what it is that you can do with where you are and what you're going through. Whether that's relationally, whether that's financially, or whether that's spiritually. And then, on the other side, put God can. And maybe in that blank, write down... What it is that only He can do that maybe you've been trying to do that's just leading to frustration, anxiety. Because I I hear from Christians regularly who get really frustrated and they're like, I don't understand why God's not doing this. And I'm going to be like, because you can do that. And if we embrace the I can and begin to find freedom in the God can, What we're actually doing is trusting Him, regardless of our circumstances, because we know the character of God is good, and that is the talking point to ourselves that we need to say this week.